Hello, welcome to Better Leaders, the podcast, where we surface good leadership and smart management in media and beyond. So today we're changing things around and putting your usual host, Anita Zalina, who's the CEO and founder of Better Leaders Lab, in the hot seat. My name is Shazna Nessa, and I will be your host today. Welcome to Better Leaders. Anita, welcome. Welcome to your own Shazna. podcast. This <laughs> is this is awesome. I'm I, I like to be on that side of the conversation. Thanks for having me. Well, we're really excited to have you and thought this would be a great way to close up the year of many wonderful podcasts that you have hosted. And a lot of people know you because of this podcast where you've been interviewing experts in media and adjacent to media, uh, luminaries who've shared so many insights. And it only makes sense to speak to somebody of your caliber as well to learn your insights as well so we can keep adding to this body of knowledge. So um, I can make a lot of assumptions about what people know about you. Um, You've had an amazing career, but I would love to ask you to give us an overview of what you do now and the journey that has brought you here. Well, first of all, thanks for doing that, Chesna. uh, It was your idea uh, that we do this today, um, that basically to close out the first season of Better Leaders, you're like, why don't we talk about you for a while? And I was like, okay, well, if you think that's something that we should do, uh, let's do it. So... Thanks for having that idea and for being up for having that conversation. So the career question that I, <laughs> that I always ask my guests in the beginning, I, obviously that, that could be a very long winded answer because my career is kind of weird and wonderful, as I, I, <laughs> I like to say. But I think that the, the, the long story short is that I spent plenty of years in media leadership and management roles in a variety of media organizations. And through all of these years was tasked with changing and innovating uh, the organization. And over the years learned that changing and innovating an organization has a lot to do with changing how people think and how people act and how people lead. So what that led me to is the role that I had for the past four and a half years at CUNY, where um, I built programs for media leaders and executives and that has led me to, to start my own company early 2023, Better Leaders Lab, that acts both as a strategic advisory firm as well as an executive education training platform and community hub to talk about exactly these things, the questions of, you know, how can we lead better? How can we more effectively manage our organizations? What should or could strategy look like in times of disruption? Thank you for that. You know, leadership as a term, as a, as something that is so much more prevalent in our conversations today, has feels like it's evolved a lot and we're talking about it a lot more, let's say in the last 20 years or so. Um, what has changed? What has made leadership so distinct uh, to the point where you're able to create a whole organization to help others understand what it means and to practice it in their day-to-day life, professionally and personally. I mean, listen, the, the, the thing about leadership is that, and it's interesting, since, I, since I've been focusing on the topic, I, I see questions of good and bad leadership suddenly kind of emerge in, in everything that happens in the world. So I'm, I'm reading history books and I, 
you know, I, I, I think about how this or that war uh, or battle was an example of good or bad leadership. Or I read, you know, stories about politicians um, that made certain decisions and think about the question of how, what philosophy of leadership is behind that decision. So I don't think we come from a world where there was no conversation on what leadership is or should be. It's just that the media industry traditionally didn't spend a lot of time publicly talking about, um, about leadership and qualities in leadership, um, that, uh, need to be prioritized. I think part of that is due to that very outdated notion of, you know, leadership being like a soft topic. Um, and, you know, that perception of, you know, you know, strength as something, you don't talk about these things, right? I think we as an industry for a long time have somehow cherished that philosophy. Um, so it just wasn't en vogue to have these conversations about leadership, management, about vulnerability, about communication, about feedback, about teams, um, about shortcomings um, in culture to have these conversations in the public space. And I think that is slowly but gradually changing. I don't think we're at the point where, where we are 100% there. Otherwise, you know, I'd be probably out of a job, uh, which would be great. I'd, I'd totally do that and move to an island. Um, but I think things are changing and have been changing for a while. Right. And, you know, sometimes when I re reflect upon it, when I think about sort of the growth of the, you know, the understanding of how important leadership is as a skill, as a way of thinking, a way of living. Um, I also think a lot about the sort of the digital world and digital transformation and like there's so much we don't control anymore, which makes it even more important. What are some insights you've had um, around how, how one has to adapt as a leader mm. given this moment or these moments have happened, you know, sort of evolved over the last years of this loss of control over what yeah. happens. <laughs> I think the loss of control is really what makes it so hard sometimes for people who grew up in a different, um, in a different era and a different leadership mindset, or let me put it that way, the perceived loss of control, because I don't think it's loss of control. It's like that perception of how can I have all these answers and how can I act as a manager or leader in a world where everything is so unstable and permanently changing. So I think what's become more important to deal with that uncertainty and deal with that volatility is to, to learn methods to do that for yourself as a leader, like to stay resilient and somehow, you know, sane and healthy while navigating that uncertainty, but also to be able to help your teams and your peers to kind of live through that because uncertainty is, and I think that's a very human basic fundamental thing. Uncertainty is a stressful situation, right? And we have a lot of uncertainty, especially in the media industry, but also in the world, broadly speaking, right? It's not just media. And I think leadership more and more means to deal with that uncertainty in, in a way that is not complex complacency that is not like, you know, oh, we'll just ignore it. We'll just wait what happens. We can't do anything about it anyway, but also not the other extreme of like, just, you know, panicking, 
<laughs> because both extremes make it very hard to lead a team or an organization or develop a succinct strategy. So I think that is what leadership has become, uh, mostly dealing with that uncertainty, finding frameworks and methods to do that, staying sane and, and, and healthy and centered yourself, but also helping your teams, your peers, others, partners in the ecosystem to also stay resilient and sane. Right. And I would love if, if you could, if we could zoom in a little bit, you've given us a really great big picture of, of leadership. Give us some examples of your own journey. Like mm. when did you feel comfortable with uncertainty? Were you born like that? Did you have to <laughs> learn to be like that? It's such and a also, good question. you know, you've, you, you, you've been mentoring so many people and you have these programs, um, executive leadership programs where you've seen a lot of people budding into their own leadership journey. Share some sort of, maybe some specific insights mm. into, into what it was like for you for starters. So I will say, so it's a good question because I've thought about that and I'm, it's not that I always felt that centered and self-confident that I feel now, but I do think I had, I always had a, a certain amount of self-confidence in the sense that I, I knew my values. I knew my kind of ethical lines. I knew what I wanted and what I didn't want. I, always feel like I had strong beliefs um, and, you know, was able to stand up for the things that I believe in, maybe because I grew up in a very, you know, safe and protected and loving family where I, I learned that I could, you know, express my opinions and express my beliefs and follow my beliefs without, you know, having to fear repercussions or anything else. So it, I think that helps. But I think I had a, I had a neck of that, like, even when I was a kid. Um, and then over time, I just kind of learned to, to nourish that, that, and, and kind of train that muscle, I'd say. Um, I think what I, what I understood relatively early on in my career, I mean, I started out as a journalist, right? And I love being a journalist. I still, you know, that, that was, that was a, a wonderful time, very exciting, very adrenaline driven, as everyone knows who works in journalism and specifically online journalism. But I really quickly understood that there is something that makes me even more excited than producing or editing, uh, journalistic pieces. And that made me a bit more, if I might say so, unique that I really enjoyed um, asking those big questions, those big questions on strategy and structure and how to organize a team and how to decide what, which product to build and which not to build. Like all these kind of questions where there is no certainty, right? There is no path that is 100% clear. You have to make hundreds and hundreds of decisions. And you, you know, you make them as good as you can make them with a combination of data and gut feeling and experience and insights and user feedback. But you never really know if things are going to work out. So you need, do need a certain amount of grit and a certain amount of self-confidence and a certain amount of, you know, feeling like centered and sure about the path you're going. And I, I, I think at some point I understood and I remember that actually vividly after, you know, working as a journalist for seven or eight years, I kind of reached this point where I understood 
Oh, weird. I thought that's a very kind of natural thing that everyone has, that kind of, you know, enjoying that uncertainty and enjoying, you know, making decisions and walking paths that haven't been walked before. But I learned that it's actually quite a frightening thought for many people and that not everyone has this natural love for change and uncertainty and, you know, walking paths that are new. So I kind of felt like, wow, this is something I really enjoy. And it's something that gives me pleasure, but that also, at least in the feedback I get from others, is something that helps people and organizations uh, grow and change. Um, so that's when I kind of started to focus more on that strategy, leadership, change management path. And in fact, you, you know, you, 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 as you mentioned earlier, you spent a lot of time in your career in big roles and big organizations. And of course, now you've zoomed into this focus on leadership and you've switched to an entrepreneurial path, which must have taken a little bit of a mental shift. What does that change for you as an entrepreneur mm. versus working for other people and a lot of the time potentially having to implement somebody yeah. else's idea? Yeah. I mean, I feel like you know, the, the, the interesting thing is that this was never, and there was never a master plan in my career. There still isn't. I always have a very hard time answering that. Where would you be in five years? Question. It might look structured now. <laughs> Let me tell you, it was not structured it, and it didn't feel structured as I've lived through it. But in hindsight, I think the journey to starting my own company now was a journey of appreciating the importance of freedom and independence combined with being in a place where I can 100% stand up for my values and beliefs and kind of the growing importance of that part of my personality. I think that is what ultimately led me to starting my own thing. I already had a lot of freedom in my last uh, role at CUNY. My wonderful team there and my wonderful bosses there basically gave me a lot of freedom to build things as long as, you know, I kept things running there. Um, so that was already kind of a taste of that freedom and independence and purely focusing on things that I truly believe in. But obviously the entrepreneurial journey now is like a hundred percent. That's like a hundred percent me. I, I can 100% decide who to partner with. I can 100% decide who to hire. I can 100% decide what programs to build, um, what companies to consult with. And I can say, no, I'm in a luxurious position. I, I, I know that this is a rare gift that I, with my network and my experience, can say no to contracts where I'm like, I don't think this is the right thing. I know that this is not, you know, that not everybody has um, that luxury, but that makes me very happy. So I feel like I, I, it's almost like I kind of reached that point where, where it's now 100% me. And it never was less than, I, I, I was lucky enough to work in positions where it was always, you know, 90% or 80% me. So I never had to, you know, completely let go of my beliefs or values um, or kind of moral imperatives or topics I care about. But I will say that I was in some senior management roles where the stretch was hard, where the stretch was, you know, where I sometimes woke up in the morning and felt like, I don't know if that 
you know, if I can stand behind that. I, I don't know if I can, you know, in good conscience, get up, look myself in the mirror and tell this and that person that they are going to lose their job. Not because I'm weak in the sense of not being able to, to lay off someone. I think that's part of management. And it's, uh, I, you know, I think I, every, every manager has to learn that, but because sometimes I wasn't the one making the decisions, you know, as, as you know, in large organizations, other people, even when you're high up, even if you're in C level, even if you're C minus one level, there are people above you who make the decision strategically of, you know, which departments to close and which projects to prioritize. And I wasn't always in that position to, you know, say, oh, this is awesome. I'm 100% agree with the assumptions or the reasoning behind that. And that was hard. And I think that was my part of my corporate learning experiences that I just have a very high I have a very high personal need for alignment and ethics and staying true to my beliefs. And I think that is also why I did a decent job in the corporate world, but it was never kind of my totally natural habitat. Mm, that's so interesting. And, and then, and then of course you did a stint in academia, right? So yes. what was, how, <laughs> what was that contrast like? So I always lovingly uh, say um, that, that I, I always only did like fake academia in the sense of like, I'm not a PhD. I didn't kind of produce research. I didn't kind of have to follow all the, the proper academic rules that exist and that I think sometimes are great and sometimes are also very exhausting and very tiring and very restraining. Um, I love that. I, I, CUNY gave me, and that, you know, goes out to my, my, my wonderful colleagues there and peers there and bosses there, CUNY allowed me to work in a quasi-academic setting without the constraints of academia, to build something, to build leadership programs, to build programs around entrepreneurship, around product, without having to follow, let me put it that way, all the rules, all the bureaucratic rules. Of course, we had to follow some, but they, they kind of just let us build something. Uh, very freely that is impactful and that's still thriving and that my wonderful colleagues Marie and Nikita together with the team are now running and that I still which I'm very happy about get to work with as an instructor and coach um, and teacher but of course there are constraints right you're as a journalism school I mean you're you know, you cannot build a consultancy arm and you cannot do work for non-journalistic entities and as a public university, you know, once you use taxpayers' money, there is obviously, and rightfully so, right, a lot of constraints how you can use that money. So, of course, there were these constraints. And uh, and at some point, I just felt like ready to kind of leave those constraints behind. Um, this all sounds very, as, as I'm talking to you, I'm like, I'm talking about freedom and, you know, uh, you know, fi finding my, yeah. my, my true self and that all the time. And it, it sounds so like touchy feely, but in a way, and in a way it is. Um, but I really truly feel that my career journey is and was a journey towards focusing on the things I truly, truly care about, working with the people I truly, truly appreciate to work with. 
and partnering with institutions or organizations or teams whose work I admire. And I'm at this point now where, of course, you sometimes have to, you know, maybe decide to take a consulting gig that, you know, pays a lot of money that is not always 100% fun. I mean, I'm not talking about that, right? Job, it's not like everything is 100% fun all the time, but I can truly say that everything I'm doing now and, and Better Leaders Lab is doing now, I feel 100% alignment with everything we're doing. Yeah, it sounds like you're talking about intention as well. Yes. That you're not, you know, you're not, you're not just on the train moving. You are being very careful about how you decide how you spend your time. You've talked a few times, you've mentioned your values and beliefs quite a few times. Was wondering if you could articulate, give us a peek into what some of those are. And also, you know, just very impressed that, you know, I'm pretty sure you're going to be able to do that. I think a lot of us, um, you know, we inherently have them, but we haven't been able to articulate them easily. Um, tell us a little bit about your, how you think about these mm. um, frameworks. So uh, several, several obviously approaches and some of them were clear, somehow clear to me throughout my, my whole life and career and some just kind of emerged. Um, so I do have, so respect is a value that's, um, that's super high on my list. Um, I want to, I have a, a, a deep tendency to feel that everyone from the person cleaning the office in the morning to the CEO deserves a general approach that is respectful. Everyone, whether they perform great or terrible as an employee, deserves respect in how you treat them and how you give them feedback. I want to be respected. <laughs> I want to feel that respect. And I, I strive to show respect to everyone I interact with. I think that is something that, that I care about deeply. Um, I do, again, freedom, freedom and, uh, and independence is something that is a, a those are values that I care about deeply, personal freedom, but also giving people, as an example, people I work with, the freedom to do their best work in ideally the most flexible way that I, you know, can allow them to do their work. I, um, I, I'm, I, I think everyone has their personal preference in how they how they work, how they thrive, how they create. And I see absolutely no logic in forcing your own way of working on someone else. So I think that freedom, I want that freedom for myself, but I also want to help others, whether that's peers or employees kind of live with that freedom. And then the other thing that I'll say, and I don't know if you can say that this is a value, but I'm very impact driven. Um, some people might use the word ambitious for it. And I sometimes feel when someone says ambitious to a woman, it kind of has this kind of this bitchy quality. And maybe I am, you know, bitchy or ambitious or whatever you might call it from time to time. But I don't, I don't like to waste time. I like to waste time deliberately. I'm a very lazy person, like deliberately lazy. 
I love to be a couch potato. I love to go on vacations and long trips. I love to eat and drink and spend time with friends. So I can very well let, let go of work. But when I do work, I hate to waste time. I hate to waste my own time. I hate to waste someone else's time. I, I, I do feel the world is better if we all work on something that we believe in. Um, obviously I'm glad that I found something that I truly believe in and that I'm excited to do. But I also, I, I, it's a strong value of mine. I like to be surrounded by people who also, you know, you could call it work ethic or, you know, focusing on impactful work. I just enjoy that. You know, a lot of what you just spoke about, freedom, independence, specifically flexibility, makes me think of how you've also had a, you've been quite vocal about your ideas and thoughts around more flexibility in modern workplaces, uh, the ability to work from home, hybrid, hybrid or completely at home. And now that we're kind of, what, three years on from when we all had to go home, when the pandemic, yeah. the global pandemic broke out, how do you think we're doing with this generally? But also, Anita, you're a very global citizen. So you've got one leg in Europe, one, the other one in the US, and then one arm, you know, <laughs> over in, you know, here and, and there. And so you have a very global perspective to things. And I'm, I'm guessing things aren't the same everywhere, or are they? Tell us a little bit about what you're seeing in terms of um, sort of how are the leaders in this sort of flexibility world doing in getting that, getting yeah. that to work? Jeez, it's a stressful, it's a stressful period for everyone. Partly because the world is a mess, right? The world is a mess with crises and wars and conflicts and transformation and generations that don't understand each other. So I think the world is hard to navigate. So I think that puts a strain on leaders and it, it does put a strain on, 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 on me. Um, it does put a strain on, I think, everyone. But also, we're just coming out of this pandemic, or maybe we're still in it, and we're, I don't even want to <laughs> reflect on that part, but we are coming out of the extreme intense phase of that pandemic, let me put it that way, and we are kind of readjusting to life, and we are readjusting in a way where we, where some of the things that we learned in those two years, we're like, oh, that is actually great. Maybe it's like amazing if you get to see your kids more often than on the weekend. And maybe it's great if you can take a walk with your partner during lunch break. And maybe it's great if you want to wear your PJs uh, for work or at least your, the, the bottom part of your PJs um, and, you know, a suit on top, whatever, whatever suits you. But for, for at least a day or two, if you, if you have a bad day and, and feel more comfortable like that. But then... Also, on the other hand, maybe it's more lonely and it's harder to make connections and it's harder specifically for women, younger folks, folks of color to like get the face time with their bosses in the workplace and kind of make, you know, their careers work and be heard and be respected. So I don't think it's, there's a clear, personally, I enjoy hybrid work and I enjoy being very flexible but that does not mean that, that everyone <laughs> has a 100% kind of, you know, checklist that says, Oh, great. There's only pros to that. I think it's very hard to navigate 
for leaders. I think there is hardly a way to create a system that makes everyone happy. If you create a fully hybrid organized, fully remote organization, some people are not going to love that. If you create a very much in-person company, some people are going to be like, well, you're taking away something that we had, some flexibility that we earned during the pandemic. And if you create a hybrid model, you're basically going to have some folks who find it too rigorous and some folks who find it too flexible. So I think that is a learning that the system you, you create as a leader or as an organization is never going to make everyone happy. And then the other learning that is that I feel it's a joint learning journey. So the other thing that I that sometimes see is that leaders think they have to just kind of sit in their closed off space and just make that decision as a management team. And they feel confused about how to make that decision. But everyone is confused. This is a conversation you're, you should be able to have with your teams. You should be able to have with your employees. You should be able to have these even conflicts, right? It's not an easy decision. The workplace is, and that, that I'm convinced of, the workplace is changing forever and has been changed forever. Now the question is, what of these changes, you know, which of these changes are here to stay? What do we make to kind of get from emergency mode, which is what a pandemic, right? Our very first pandemic that we all experienced is emergency mode. How do we get from that emergency mode to proper new work mode? I think that's the phase we are stuck in now. And I think that if I can say one thing is, I think it needs attention. It needs every leader's attention. Yeah. Um, you also talked a lot about independence. Um, again, I'm bringing that word up, independence and freedom. How then do you balance that with uh, your ability to collaborate with other people? So there is two angles to that. One is my personal need, my personal need and my personal love for freedom. I just love to be able to say tomorrow, oh, I don't have a meeting till noon. I'm just going to go to a coffee house in Vienna and have a nice breakfast. I love to be able to do that. I love to be able to say, you know what? I want to see my friends in New York. I'm going to combine some business with some leisure and spend a few weeks in New York. I enjoy that freedom personally, but I also always knew, knew that I professionally, I didn't just want to be a kind of free floating solo player. I could, I think, relatively easily make a 100% career that pays me a decent salary, so to speak, just by doing, you know, a consulting gig here, a teaching gig there, just kind of a free agent, um, not partnering up with anyone, not building any brands or programs, not collaborating, not employing anyone. And I was always very clear for me personally, I don't think there's anything bad about going down that route. It can be a very rewarding and flexible route, but for me personally, I, I felt it wasn't enough. For me, collaboration, finding partners in the ecosystem, seeing how we kind of together push certain conversations around equity, around leadership, around 
transformation around innovation, about around change, how we together shape the ecosystem. That's something that I, I, I truly, truly desire to be part of. And collaboration is an essential, essential element of that, just because I'm a, not a one-man show, but we're a small team. What I'm building is very young, very fresh. Just by itself, it can never have, it can be a seed, but it can never have the impact I desire for it to have. So impact only works through partnerships, through collaboration, through communication, through community. And I always had the ambition, and I still have it, to build and foster and hone that community and identify partners to, to collaborate with. And, and what sort of, like, how do you approach delegation in these collaborations? Yeah. Or, or shared goals or divvying up work or directing the work? Like, what's the... I mean, listen, collaboration means that there is always a negotiation, right, to a certain extent whether there is money involved or just kind of exchange of services or you're organizing an event together, there's always two partners at the table and this, or three or four. And as soon as there are two or three or four partners at the table, there's going to be differing opinions. So collaboration means that sometimes you just have to take a step back and say, well, I would have built this program if I had built it just for myself. This is how I would have done it. But I respect that the person on the other side of the table has needs and has a certain perspective on impact and has a certain vision of what they want to build. So I do understand that we need to come to an agreement here. I will say, though, that I do pick partners and collaborators and employees and contractors where the alignment is strong, where we don't have to, you know, do that negotiation piece about general agreement. Like I would not partner with an organization or a team that does not have a strong stance on equity and diversity. I would not partner with an organization or a person or a team who's not in generally aligned with my thoughts on transformation or change and that it's important. So I do, I do seek general alignment and agreement first. Otherwise I would not. I would choose to not partner with someone or be part of something where there isn't that alignment. But then within that kind of realm, once you're in there, of course it's a, it's a, it's teamwork and it's, you know, partnership and it's negotiation. And I don't, I think I've become more, probably that's something that age does to you. Um, I think I've become more relaxed when it, I don't have to have 100% of Anita stamps on the things I'm doing. I've become way more relaxed in, in realizing, you know, this is, if it's 90% of what I, you know, suggested, that's still great. I can still be happy about that. I, I can have others have their wins. I think that's one of these kind of corporate misconceptions. And by the way, also one of the things I thoroughly did not enjoy about working in corporate media that, you know, you can only win if someone else loses. I fundamentally am not a believer in that concept. I think there is a world where everyone can win and there is a world where you can make the pie bigger rather than smaller. And I think collaboration and delegation and communicating about that transparently is a path to get there. 
Yeah, I think your framing of collaboration as, nego- as negotiation is really good. And you gave us a really clear idea of what you think about when you think about alignment, because so often I hear people saying, oh, you know, I wish I could just do my job when I go to my job. Hmm. And what they, what they mean is they spend so much time trying to get alignment with just core things, just very yeah. basic things. Um, so that's, that's, that's really helpful to hear. Thank you. Um, I was also intrigued by the sort of the, the uh, focus and framing of everyone can win, make the pie bigger, which, um, you know, I heard a lot of uh, in sort of those early Silicon Valley years, these this is very sort of Californian um, optimism. Tell me more about that. I mean, you did spend some time at Stanford. Funny, I wouldn't have uh, marked, marked Silicon Valley as the place to, to think about the pie is bigger framework. Maybe it changed. I think it's a very Californian. Yeah, it's certainly think- not an East Coast, uh, <laughs> you know, version of the world. Um, but I, I certainly was influenced by yeah. some of the um, optimism of the West. Um, I'm yes. curious about your time there. That is a really good question. And I think what my time at, at Stanford, and you and I both are alums of the JSK Fellowship, that's actually how we, how we know each other. Um, I did it, I think, two years before you, now 11 years ago, long time ago. Um, I think what it did, so, so Silicon Valley or Stanford or an experience like the fellowship for the first time, spending professional time in the United States um, as a fellow, what it did for me is it just kind of opened up my my world and my perspective in a in a way that is not always comfortable. It just kind of showed me Stanford and and the time in California showed me that so much is possible, but also that so much is so hard to do. So it basically is a little bit like, you know, the emperor's new cloth. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. And I think that's the hard thing and that, that's also the stressful thing about you know, suddenly having that wider range of perspective, it's very hard to afterwards go back and be like, okay, well, I saw the world and I saw what's possible. And I, I heard all these kind of passionate speeches about change and change in society and the change we want to be and see. And now I'm just going, going to go back and do my job. For me, at least that was very hard. And I think it's similar to quite a few people who, who are touched by that you know, call it whatever you want, that spirit (laughs) of Stanford and that spirit of Silicon Valley, I think it becomes very hard to go back to to being content with just being a tiny, tiny player in the system. I think for many people, and you can say that this is cheesy, yes, and you can say that this is overambitious and not everyone, you know, who (laughs) gets in touch with that that framework in Stanford or, you know, that school of design thinking or whatever you might, whatever is part of that. Not everyone afterwards is going to go off to, you know, change the world for sure. But it does something to you. Um, and it did something to me. And I think it kind of opened my world in a way where it became more global. Suddenly my, my network became, I was, you know, still based in Europe, but part of my network was in the US. Um, I had this idea of doing something that's bigger than just and full respect to journalists, right? But then just working as a journalist in an editorial team. So I came away with quite a, with a much clearer feeling for what impact felt for me personally. Mm-hmm. 
you know, one of the questions I think you've answered here is I wanted to ask you about what kind of support did you get in your career? Who are the people and organizations or networks or or even fellowships that help you get to where you are today? I think it sounds like JSK played a, the JSK Fellowship had a great role in that. You've also done other things. Are there, what other, you know, what other tips do you have for listeners who are also want, who also want to broaden their universes in the way you have? So I will say two things, Shazna, and it's quite, quite surprising actually. The, the first one is that one of the things that I still think I have to learn and that I'm not good at is I'm actually not good at asking for support and building support networks for myself. Part of it is because I never really felt I needed it. Um, needed it in the sense of like, I always felt like, well, I'd much rather help someone else and give support to someone else than ask for that support. But I think I could actually fare much better if I asked for that support more often. Um, I think I'm very much in the, and, and I think part of that is if you're, you know, a teacher and the coach and the mentor and dealing with those leadership questions, you're kind of thrown into that mentor role and coach role. So you become the person helping others. And I, I thoroughly enjoy doing that. Right. But sometimes I feel like I, I could <laughs> step to the other side more often. So I think that's something I want to learn for that next phase in my career to ask for support and to ask for help and to tell folks when I need time with them and when I, you know, need a conversation. Um, but the other thing, uh, about, about that, uh, <laughs> that, that learning journey, how, you know, what I can, what I can share with others is at some point I, I learned to ask myself if I, make that decision now, if I take that leap, if I quit that job, if I apply for that fellowship, if I write the message to that person, to that famous person I don't know on Twitter, at some point, my main question to ask myself became, what is the worst thing that can happen if I do that? Usually, the worst thing that can happen if you send a cold call email to someone saying, hey, I admire you. Can we grab a coffee? Is that this person doesn't answer or maybe answers and says, I'm sorry, I don't have time. The worst thing that can happen if you apply for an MBA or a fellowship is that you don't get it. The worst thing if you quit your job and then look for a new one is that it might take you a month or two longer than you expected to find that next gig. So usually the worst things are not really bad things, right? Usually the worst things that can happen if you're in that luxurious, privileged position that we're in is, you know, a slight inconvenience, a period of uncertainty, maybe a period where you earn less money, not really anything terrible. So once I kind of, once that clicked in my head, it became much easier for me to make decisions as a leader that allowed me to also stay very true to myself. One, to say no to jobs that didn't feel right, to quit jobs that didn't feel right anymore, to reach out to people where I just didn't know whether they would even respond to me, being, you know, a little journalist from a little country, (laughs) reaching out to someone like super famous. But, you know, I feel like just, just do it is a really good philosophy for that. I would not be where I am if I also hadn't invested time and energy in doing things outside of my job. So I never 
I always loved my various jobs and, and enjoyed them, but I never let them define my full personality. My first few trips to the US, I just basically, my, my employer would never have paid for that. I, you know, I reimbursed, I got reimbursed for the first, I think, cab, you know, fare when I was already in my 30s. The first 10 years, I mean, there was nothing like that. I worked in a very precarious like newsroom as, as one of the lowest paid employees there. So I, I, the first trips to the US, I just kind of, you know, bought that ticket and, and sent emails to people and said, I want to meet people who work in media innovation. And everyone can do that. I'm not saying everyone can afford that ticket. I, again, I'm well aware that this is a privileged situation, but sometimes it worries me a little bit that, that I talk to young folks who are entering into the world of media these days, or even the world of media entrepreneurship. And they ask me, well, who paid, you know, who, who paid for that trip? And I said, well, I, I just paid for it because I felt it's important for me. I wanted to do it. And they're like, oh, but you know, I just have to find an employer first who makes that possible. And I'm like, no, you don't. Don't, you know, don't wait for someone to create that path for you. Have a job that makes you happy, but also have something outside of that job, a passion project, topics you care about, networks you care about. That's, I think, the advice I'd give. You asked your own wrap-up question around <clears throat> what advice would you give your younger self? My younger self. Well, but that's, that's potentially different. Let me think about that. What advice would I give my younger self? If it's about careers, I really, I don't spend a lot of time fretting about, oh, this I could have done differently or that I could have done differently. I think I would, broadly speaking, I would do everything again <laughs> like I did it. But there is one thing that I would tell my younger self. I would tell my younger self, go to the networking events, to go to the parties, to go to have that drink with colleagues, to not be the person to sit in the office and try to finish up stuff and try to get to the end of your to-do list and try to get a little gold star in your little kind of kindergarten book that says, she again finished her homework first. I, I learned that the hard way. Decisions in organizations, not just in organizations, decisions in ecosystems are not being made solo at desks. They are being made at convenings, in conversations, at parties, at dinners, at events. And men in generally, I hate those kind of generalizations, but men and specifically white men are much better at, at doing that. Um, and I think we as women, sometimes tend to feel that if we just get to the end of that to-do list, that's going to speak for itself. And it took me a while to understand that, well, this is how success is measured at school. This is not how success is measured in life. And that you, at some point in your career, will never again get to the end of that to-do list. I don't know when I got to the end of my to-do list for the last time, but I learned to, to ride that wave and I learned to feel comfortable with it. Yeah, and that, that really um, aligns with us, some of the sort of values and beliefs you talked about earlier about, you know, how precious time is, right? You don't want to waste time. You want to be really intentional about how you're using it. We are coming to the end of another year and um, curious, uh, two 
closing questions for you, maybe interconnected, maybe not. What should we be on the lookout for in terms of trends in the journalism space, in the media space, whether it's leadership or things that will impact leadership? There are so many, as you said, the world is kind of crazy, um, very difficult moments right now. Um, and then separately, what does uh, what are you looking forward to next year? What do you uh, have on your mind? So the first thing is really, I think a crazy world means that we all need to find ways to deal with that craziness and stay somehow sane and resilient as leaders, as people, as humans, as organizations, as teams. So I think what I would look, be on the lookout for for 2024 is asking ourselves that question, like very personally, but also ourselves as teams and organizations, what can, what helps us to stay resilient? What helps us to stay sane? What helps us to still have fun in that stressful time? To have these conversations and make space for these conversations. I think that is the, the one thing that I would prioritize as a leader. Yeah. Can I flip that question to you? What would you do? Like what helps you stay resilient? What helps you find the the bright spots in you know, darker days? I get to interact with a lot of people I admire. My days are filled with you know, often virtual, but also sometimes in person, but you know, virtual is in person in a way, with conversations with people who are compassionate, have strong ethical boundaries, who I respect, who I admire, who have smart things to say about the future of the world. And that, that feels very rewarding to me. That is very, some people are like, oh my God, you have like six or seven calls or Zooms a day. And I'm like, this is what gives me joy and what gives me energy to be able to talk to folks like you, friends, colleagues, inspirations and, and walk away with the feeling that there are people doing good things in that crazy world. And also being surrounded by, by, by family and friends, um, that give me a very, you know, deep grounding. So, and, and the support network and, uh, and feeling very comfortable in that network. I think those are the things that personally keep me grounded. And if you ask me what is, what is on the horizon for, for, for me personally, 2024, a lot of exciting, um, exciting, um, things happening. Um, usually I give myself. So one of the things that I do early January is I actually January 1st, I always try to come, come up with a model for the next year, for the year to come, a kind of professional, personal intersection model. And what I do is I look at my calendar from the past year. I reflect on projects I did, on trips I did, on people I met. And I try to kind of identify the ones that gave me pleasure and then the ones that didn't, you know, give me a ton of pleasure. And just kind of try to identify if what there were themes that didn't get the attention in the past year that they should have gotten and try to think about what I really, really want to prioritize in the year to come. So for, for, for example, for 2023, my two words were like a, an interconnected freedom and impact. That was my 2023. I wanted to build that organization, still keep as much of my freedom as I could while being an entrepreneur, but also build it in a way that allows me to have impact. 
And for 2024, I already did that thinking exercise, even though it's November. Wow, we're going to get a sneak peek. I know, we're going to give a sneak peek. <laughs> and for 2024, it's presence. And I want to be present for the people in my life, for my friends, for people I love. I want to spend more time with them. And I want to be present in the moment, spend time, more time away from my phone, be more dedicated to my in-person time and just, you know, shut the computer from time to time. And part of the reason is that I'm, I'm working on a little human family expansion project wow. uh, that's due in February, which is also why this podcast is going to go in a little hiatus in 2024. But yeah, I think presence is my being present for that little human and for my friends and family, but also for the people I collaborate with and work with and who trust me as a, a mentor or a teacher. That is my focus for the next year. Well, many congratulations to you, Anita. <laughs> Thank we you. Can't, we can't wait to um, meet uh, the extended family. And also, I think we all have a lot to learn from how you design your uh, New Year's resolutions in a way, way more effective than my laundry list of to-dos that <laughs> never get done. Uh, just the simplicity of presence is so profound as well. So thank you so much for sharing sharing that technique with us. And of course, best of luck and a happy, happy holidays and um, look forward to next year and what that brings to this podcast in whatever form or shape it takes. Thank you so much, Shazna, and thank you so much for being game for doing that uh, interview as the last episode in basically the first series of the Better Leaders podcast, and I really enjoyed it. Thanks. This was today's episode of Better Leaders. If you enjoyed it, please do follow us and subscribe. Thanks for listening. Missing Link.